0: Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana here with my friend and Chavuta, Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masechet Ketubot, daf peichet, page 88. So we're still in the midst of a discussion about exactly how a ketuba is collected. And uh, one of the things that the Mishnah mentioned yesterday was nechassim meshubadim, right? If a woman has wants to claim uh, her ketubah money uh, from a leans property, in other words, her husband sold this property to a third party. There isn't other money in the estate for which she can collect her ketubah. And so she try, she claims it against this liens uh, property, but she has to take an oath first uh, that she, you know, that she wasn't paid. Tanan hatam. So the Gemara here now quotes a Mishnah that appears in Masachet Shfuyot, Andaf Memhe, 45a. Uh, and this Mishnah has a similar concept, which is that orphans only can collect payments also by means of an oath. So they're trying to create a parallel here between women, a woman getting her ketubah money by an oath and an orphan getting the ketubah money by an oath. Mikan. So the Gemara asks, you know, who are we talking about here? From who? Who is the orphan trying to collect the money from? Ilema milova. Right? If we say, right that they are collecting payment with an oath, right, from someone, from one who borrowed money, right? In other words, someone borrowed money from their father, okay, and they want to collect that money. The father dies, they want to collect the money, um, and so, you know, okay, so they would, you know, is that maybe what the case is? So the Gemara says that doesn't make sense, because when the father would go to collect that money, he doesn't have to take a Shvua, so why should the you know, why should the uh, orphans also have to take a Shavuah? Rather, this is what this mission is talking about. What it's saying is, is that the orphans of the lender. So in other words, you had a, 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 a debt that was created, right? Somebody, Reuven, borrowed money from Shimon. Both Ruvain and Shimon die, okay? And now their children have to sort out the payment. So here what we would be saying is is that the children of Shimon who lent the money, right, they come to collect uh payment uh from the, you know, from the children of Ruvain who borrowed the money, right? And in that case, it can only be done with the Shvua. So very, very interesting. In other words, if it sort of like goes to the next generation, right? It's like inherited debt or inherited thing, you know, um, you know, that that's how it would be. I'm a Rav Zerika, Yehuda, Rav said in the name of Rav Yehuda, Loshanu, Elisha, This was taught, right, that one who, you know, wants to collect, uh, that you take a Shfua, right, you can collect a debt from orphans only in this following case, right, if the borrower's, if the Loshanu, Elisha, Amru, So only if the borrower's orphans. Now, this is one of the things that makes this Gemara confusing, because it uses just the word yitomim, like it did before, where it just said, ha yitomim, You don't know if they're talking about the borrower or the lender. <laughs> so we have to like read the Gemara and look at the Mepharshim to figure that out. So thank you, you know t- this is a little bit typical Gemara, right? So if the borrower's orphans say, amar lanu abba, lavati uparati, right? Our father said to us, I borrowed and repaid. Now again, you can figure it out because of, what it says afterwards, but it is interesting. They sort of don't like qualify it. I don't, I, I found that interesting. Um, so he says, I borrowed and I repaid. Aval. so in that case, right? Uh, they would have to take a shvua, right? Aval. so in other words, if the lender's kids came, somebody came and said, your father owed me money, and they say, no, our father said, you know, uh, I borrowed and I repaid, they would have to take a shvua. Aval Amru, amru Vati, but if the orphans say our father said to us, I did not borrow, you know, I did not borrow, right? Then uh, they can't even collect it with an oath. In other words, you can't have somebody uh, take an oath saying, like, no, this was still an outstanding debt. They're saying their father said that he never actually, uh, 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 you know, took, never even borrowed money. Matkifla Rava. So Rava. Doesn't agree to this, and he says, Adaraba, right? Actually, right on the contrary, okay." And he says, "Kola Omer lo lavati, Omer lo parati dummy." He says, "No, if someone makes a claim of I didn't borrow, it's the same thing as saying I did not repay. So therefore, if there's any evidence that there is that he did borrow, he should have to pay the entire amount, and the lender actually doesn't have to take an oath. Like if there's any evidence at all, if there's a document, anything like this." It, it, it's not a question, there's no oath that needs to happen here. Saying lo lavati is the same thing as saying lo parati. But if there's some evidence that you can give, we treat those cases the same. eat idmar. So then the Gemara basically says, okay, so this is really what was says, right? It was stated, hachi idmar. It was stated like this. Amarav, Zerika Amarav Yehuda. Lo shanu Elishamru yatomim. So this halacha was only taught if the orphan said, and again, this is the borrower ones. Amarlanu aba lavati uparati. the father said i borrowed and i repaid okay aval amru but if they said right so in that case the shfuah would have to be made aval amru but if they said our father said lo lavati i didn't borrow okay the person who collects the debts can collect even without an oath now, it's interesting. They sort of like amend the text to just be like what Rava's, uh, you know, objection was. So it's, it's sort of interesting to see how they do that. And then, you know, this is the conclusion of, uh, of this section. I think this is interesting because, first of all, it's sort of doing this parallel between unique situations where people have to take an oath in order to collect what's owed them, right? Either the woman we started point was a woman with a ketubah who has to get it from lien property and then comparing it to a case of orphans, right? Um, But what's, you know, know, I thought to me at least it was like a case of inherited debt, right? Or, uh, you know, how do we, um, you know, prove these things or disprove these things? And it made me really think about it. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get to Shvuyot and we really talk about these oaths. You know, this was not a. I I think these things were written on paper, but they didn't have paper the way that we did. Like, that's kind of my assumption a little bit. Like, here you can walk into any store and you, you know, I don't know. I, I live in notebooks. Like, I write everything down and I have a gazillion notebooks where I write lists and keep track of things. But I what this sort of came to show me is I think there was like a lot of oral transmission of information. And so you often got into these situations of like one party said this, one party said that. And therefore, the only way to solve these things was by someone. And, and the, you know, that's what the commerce tries to determine is which side is it has to take an oath. And the assumption is nobody's going to want to take an oath uh, in vain, right? Nobody's going to want to swear with using God's name uh, unless they really, you know, mean it. Um, and, and so I think it just shows us something a little bit differently. Like, I think often there was like, not necessarily a paper trail the way that we have, like today we just have boxes and mounds of paper, although yes, I know things are paperless, but in other words, we have electronic paper trail, but I think, you know, what this passage sort of showed me and also, you know, is that there was a lot of like oral claim, like someone would say this and this happened and I'm owed this money or I paid this money. And so therefore you had to sort of had a system where like people just basically had to swear in court because there really wasn't a way to determine, uh, you know, what the actual truth was. And so you're sort of using the assumption nobody would swear in God's name unless they were actually telling the truth.
1: I think this question of the paper trail is an interesting one um, because I agree that we now track everything, obviously, but I wonder whether how much of this was oral, as you suggested, Jordano, and how much of it was, you know, in records that we don't have, you know, it's not, these kinds of things are not exactly holy writ, they're not the kind of things that were included in the Gemara as, at the time, right? But like, when we look at things, you know, the, the paperwork that made it into the Cairo Geniza. now I know that all of those materials are hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of the Gemara. But there's all kinds of things that got written down that wouldn't have been preserved if they hadn't had a policy of keeping things, you know, locked up in a Geniza, even if they were like grocery lists, right? And here, I, I don't know. I I I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just... I have an open question over whether this is a kind of thing that was oral and therefore regularly needed clarification or if it was a kind of thing that was not oral even and still needs clarification because because we end up with people who are, you know, fundamentally on opposite sides of a financial issue and therefore there has to be some way to adjudicate and that means that somebody's going to have to take an oath or whatever to to you know, to be willing to take an oath. And and that will clarify the situation, even if everything was perfectly documented, because it's still going to end up at some point into that he said, she said, or, you know, in a case of alone, he said, he said, or with the Yutomim, they said, whatever, right? Meaning it's people's words against people's words. I think even if there is some notation of it, in some official place. Um, but I don't know that there was, and you might be completely, absolutely right. Um, the other thing I just wanted to comment on is the fact that, and we've noted this before, but nobody is worried that people are going to take this kind of oath um, as a lie. Nobody is worried that the people are going to be required to take an oath by the court and that they then might prove untrustworthy because they will have sworn in vain. And I think that's also a really notable point. Um, you know, perjury nowadays is also considered really, really bad, and people are not assumed to be perjuring themselves. For example, if they say something in court under all the, you know, swearing or affirming that goes on in court. But it still seems to me to be, the fact that you could take it as a given, that nobody is going to lie, Um, means that the false pretenses when people are disagreeing, if there are false pretenses, they're still not presumed to go that far as to be willing to swear in the name of God uh, as a lie. Okay, I'm going to go on at the very bottom of Amad Alf, really going on to Amad Bet. We have a whole discussion which kind of boils down into a he said, he said question about the Gemara, meaning trying to figure out whose opinion lines up with whom. Rabbi Shimon Omer calls man Shetuvat k'tubatah. So this is a line from the Mishnah where Rabbi Shimon said that when she claims. You know, when she wants to come get her ketubah, and the heirs of the man who had died would then, you know, um, give her, make her take this oath, right? So now the Gemara wants to know what's what part of the Mishnah is Rabbi Shimon talking about when he says, So then we've got a number of different views saying what it is that Rabbi Shimon is referring to. So Rabbi Yirmia says, he's talking about this statement, meaning one who comes to collect the Ketuba when it's not in her husband's presence. And then that she needs a shvua, she needs an oath to be able to collect. And that would suggest that it doesn't make a difference if she's trying to collect a the sustenance payments, or her ketubah. And then if Rabbi Shimon comes to say that when she's collecting her ketubah, the heirs can you know, insist on her taking an oath to make sure that she's not taking anything of the heir's Um, inheritance, right, that's, so the, it's not, it's not exactly to get her ketubah as much as to assure the division of property, what goes to her and what goes to the utonim. If she's not, if she does not collect her ketubah, she's not trying to collect her ketubah, then then they don't administer an oath to her, meaning there's no issue of her trying um, to, collect, or this position says there's no issue of her trying to collect Mizono, um, uh, for example, right? It's only the question of the Ketubah. And then, this is a disagreement What happens? This suggests that they disagree about what's called the dispute of Hanan and the sons of the Kohanim, which was in we which is in a Mishnah um, which we haven't come to yet. Specifically, meaning in Ketubot. So, in that case, where exactly she's trying to collect her, her, her Mizonot, Hanan says she needs to take an oath at the end. What does that mean at the end? So, the case is where somebody went to Mizonot, somebody traveled overseas, right, and he didn't he apparently didn't leave her enough funds to provide for her during the whole time that he's away. And so now she wants to come to collect from her from his estate, but she only wants to collect Mizonot, meaning just the basic sustenance, not the whole Ketubah. And so Hanan says she takes this oath when she comes to collect the Ketubah later, right? Assuming there's a later that he doesn't come back, and not at the beginning when she's coming to collect Mizonot. So that whole story, we'll come to that story in the Mishnah eventually, but the point is that the Gemara and, in fact, the Mishnah were quite um, cognizant to separate between Mizonot and the Ketubah. So the Mishnah goes on over there, meaning the story of Chanan. <speaking in Hebrew> the sons of the Kohanim Gedolim disagreed with Chanan. Ve'amru Tishava betchila ubasov. They said she needs to take an oath when she, you know, at the beginning which is when she just wants the mizonot, and also at the end, when she wants to collect her ketubah. Rabbi Shimon Rabbanan Kivneg, kohanam And here we have a apparent a divide between Rabbanan and Rabbi Shimon, where Rabbi Yirmia suggests, is saying that Rabbi Shimon holds like Hanan, namely that she only takes the oath when she comes to get the ketubah. And the Chachamim the the sages say no, like the like the Bene kohanim gadolim, that she should also take an oath even for the note. So this by itself is a fairly, I would say, compact disagreement about, or or an attempt to figure out where Rabbi Shimon's position is. What happens with the rest of the daft though is that Rabbi Sheshet, Rav Shishet, who we already know has very broad shoulders, he was quite well, ver- you know, uh, a real guttle and amongst his peers, he takes issue with Rav Yirmi's statement saying that this is not what Rav Shimon's talking about. And the Gemara goes on to talk about, you know, a whole different view as according to Rav Sheshet, what Rav Shimon is really talking about. I'm going to leave it aside in the interest of time, but just to understand that as much as that Mishnah of Hanan and the B'nai Kohanam is brought here as relevant, it is not the final word, um, because as I said, Rav Sheshit comes into play where he's talking about what Rav Shimon's saying and then Abaye has an opinion and then Rav Papa has an opinion, meaning there's a good amount of discussion over what does Rav Shimon really mean when he's saying that she needs to take this oath. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this DAF. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the 100 website and until tomorrow, go and learn.